Uh, hey, Berlin, thank you for, for coming so much. It's really been awesome uh, to have all of you here. Uh, we ha understand if you have to leave, we will still answer your question if it made it past <laughs> our selection process. Me. Uh, which Austin did. So it's not my fault. Don't blame me. Blame Austin. Yeah, that's fine. This will be on YouTube at some point. So we understand if you have to leave. Uh, if your question was not answered and you really think it's a good one, uh, or you want an answer nonetheless, uh, just ask it on our forum and uh, we, we might answer it. Or not. Uh, just <laughs> All right. So let's get into this, some of these questions. First question, blood plasma donation. Uh, what would your recommendations be for a competitive powerlifter who tries to maximize his performance or her performance at meets and also considers donating plasma once per week? Will he be fine or she under the premise that he or she adapts to the stressor or should additional measures be taken? Uh, there's actually data on this um, that I reviewed in a training vlog video. Uh, I don't remember which one, and then it'd be kind of arduous to go back through and make somebody look at, yeah, just watch them all, you'll be fine. So, sorry about that. If I figure it out, I'll link the, I'll put it in the link below. If I don't figure it out, it won't be there. The data right now suggests that performance is reduced in uh, aerobic challenges uh, up to 24 hours post-plasma uh, and 48 hours after giving blood. Uh, I don't, the data on anaerobic stuff is more uh, mixed um, and it looked like that people, uh, some of them, people did just fine within one day and other people uh, had a decrease within 24 hours, but they didn't follow them out long enough. So effectively, they just looked at it within 24 hours. So my takeaway on this is if you want to donate plasma once per week, like that seems fine. I probably wouldn't do it the day before or the day of your biggest priority lifts. But if you wanted to do it on Saturday and you normally train Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, that seems fine. Or if you want to do it after your session on Friday, that would be fine. Or if you wanted to do it Thursday night and you had a low priority session on Friday, that would be fine. Uh, I just wouldn't do it 24 hours prior to my most important lifts or a meet. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I'm, uh, it, well, sorry, <laughs> Tom, you good? The question, to me, I, didn't, I wasn't quite sure. It seemed like it was more focused on the question of performance at meets. And if it came down to a performance at a meet, I mean, I would probably just, even though that, that may be what the current data available show, I would probably just not donate plasma the week of a meet, yeah. at least, if not two weeks or whatever, because sure. I, I wouldn't want to change very much going into a meet. But if you're doing it routinely in the context of training, then yeah, you would want to try to get a sense of, hey, does this actually impact me or not? And if it does, then try to schedule it during the week at a time when that's least likely to be relevant. Yep. All right. Cool. Anything else? No. Oh, good. This one's fun. And it's I, early. I picked it because I thought you would probably find it fun. Sick. <laughs> <laughs> Question two. What is the biggest disagreement between you? <laughs> Leah was betting that you would think of many things. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I do. You know what's funny? I remember the first. It wasn't a disagreement, but it was our first sort of like aha moment that I can recall, mm -hmm. which, you know, I remember weird things like the last time I had McDonald's that I also remember this text conversation. Okay. I sent you a text message. I was like, all right, look, this might've been 2013 or 2014. I was like, imagine you have two twins, right? right. Identical. <laughs> and one of them high bar squats for a year and one of them low bar squats for a year. <laughs> Who's stronger at the end of the year? And you go. No, you I, said who leg presses more Oh yeah, who leg presses, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go, I don't know, dude. <laughs> Probably the same. <laughs> Probably the same. And I was like, do we just become best friends? <laughs> uh, so we didn't disagree there, but that was our first kind of like, yeah, we probably agree on most things. Um, but I think things we actually disagree on or have disagreed on historically. Uh, BCAAs probably took me a little bit longer to kind of come around 
I, I think saying that they're useless is probably, Sienna's still a little uh, absolute for my, my, my liking. Which but, isn't what I would argue either. Sure. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> I think that most of it, most of the disagreements basically end up being situations where we're like, hey, let's actually sort this out and try to come to some degree of consensus, um, which ends up, we attempt to make that based off of some amount of you know the available evidence on the matter rather than just like, I feel it's this. No, I feel it's that. Yeah, we don't use no. feelings a lot. Well, and this may surprise you. Except when we train, then it's all about feelings. Then it's feelings. all about feelings. <laughs> uh, maybe th one thing we actually disagree on, or have, because we did try to come to a consensus after this, was the uh, importance, uh, or like the, the difference in volume uh, versus intensity and hypertrophy. So, so like you would argue, your, your supposition would be that three sets of five and three sets of 10 uh, roughly produce the same amount of hypertrophy if they're both at RP8, because the amount of stimulating reps, quote unquote, would be similar between the two. I find that idea plausible. Sure, I find it plausible, but also some evidence to suggest that maybe that's not the case given that the volume is actually double in the three sets of 10 uh, case. So from that Helms data. If you're counting the reps, mm -hmm. yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm, I'm less concerned with hard sets, uh, that being like a hard rule, but I don't think you would say it's a hard rule either. Yeah. You just, well, you I, I was talking about this with Leah before we, when we were deciding about this question too, and I think historically there have been situations where maybe I've been like less confident about some things, and then maybe that's tempered your stance on some things, where I'm like, hey, I'm not quite as sure about this. Sure. And, and then we kind of end up softening our stance on something as a result. But there, hasn't, there haven't really been things that we've been unable to come to some degree of consensus on after sufficient discussion or well, something like that. Except for you voted for Trump, so. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, welcome back. That's funny. That's funny. Yep, okay. Uh, no, one of the things I like about you among many things that I find, yes, uh, is that when we, we do disagree, it's not like a, hey, you're stupid for being that confident in this claim. Why don't you, you know. I'm like, hey, I don't know about this. Right. Similarly, uh, I don't necessarily have that sort of patience uh, with other people, although with you, I'm like, well, I feel this way because this, this, and this. Yeah. And sometimes we can come. But if, if you were somebody else, Oh yeah, you'd be attacking me on the internet probably. Yeah. <laughs> or trying to incite something. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's, you know, different strokes. Okay, question three. Apart from vitamin B12 and vitamin D, what should vegans keep an eye on in their diets? Can there be a risk that a vegan won't get enough cholesterol? Do uh, you want to you answer the cholesterol bit first? Yeah, I can do the cholesterol bit first. Yeah, right. Uh, so regarding the cholesterol question, no, that's not a risk. So recall from the cholesterol lecture, every cell in your body can make its own. And in fact, they make all the cholesterol they need. Mm -hmm. They don't actually need the cholesterol that's floating around on the lipoproteins in your blood. Um, that stuff, and when I was talking about making the LDL receptors work to clear it better and all that, that's primarily happening in the liver. The rest of your body, all your regular body's tissues, they're making all the cholesterol they need. So you don't actually require it in dietary form. Um, outside of probably some rare, you know, disorders of metabolism, genetic conditions, or something like that, but those are oh, like cholesterol synthesis, stupid rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you don't survive with that anyway. Yeah, so, not compatible. Um, with life. I'm not concerned about, uh, in, you know, insufficient cholesterol intake in a vegan population. Yep. Uh, can you trust online slash postal blood tests that take a few drops of blood, or are they, or are they all just another Theranos? 
Uh, if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen that, was that on Netflix or was it uh, uh, HBO? The Theranos document. Documentary. I actually haven't seen it. I've just oh, read what? about the company. I haven't seen. Oh the yeah, it's a great documentary. Would recommend watching. Uh, it's craziness, but. I do not have a lot of faith in uh, online or mail order uh, medical test sort of uh, providers. Um, mainly because this is usually direct to consumer type stuff, so the consumer can really order whatever they want without any sort of clinical indication for that. And just like Austin was talking about in this testosterone lecture, is you need to have some sort of symptoms and sort of clinical management going on, like present, that says eh, it's actually useful to test for your testosterone levels, and you need to make sure it's tested appropriately, and you don't get that without uh, um, this sort of, uh, sort of hands-on care from a clinician, yeah. or, or even if it's telemedicine, right? So you could do this remotely, but you still need to have that interaction with the professional, not just, I want to test my testosterone, get, send me this kit, you know? Um, so I, I don't know that I have a lot of confidence in them uh, based on the, uh, the fact that they'll allow customers to just do this seems almost unethical in a way, uh, given the potential harms that can be done. Yeah, well the problem is, so I run into this sometimes doing some telemedicine consultation, is somebody will go and get some of these tests done, they'll mail off, they'll just pick all the tests that sound good, or some, somebody on the internet told them, just get all these tests done for like male aging or whatever, you well, know, a whole bunch of tests. And then, even, even though they may be feeling fine or doing fine. And they get a whole bunch of tests that have a whole bunch of abnormal values and they're like, shit, I don't know how to interpret this. Let me go find a doctor who can interpret this for me. So they come to me and I have to interpret these tests and somebody who has no signs, no symptoms of any you know, problems, right? And uh, oftentimes I have to explain to them that this test is uninterpretable in some situations or it's not really concerning um, in some situations, or if it is concerning, um, then it ends up resulting in a whole bunch of further testing, but I'm not, I can't be sure of how much benefit the person is getting from all this further testing and diagnosis and potential treatment in the long run. So this is getting into just the world of screening in general. Screening referring to testing and uh, an individual who has no symptoms. Sure. Right, And there are lots of conditions where we can screen for things, but just because we can doesn't mean we should, because uh, screening it's important that we have data to show that the screening produces a benefit in the long run, right? So that you can do a test, you can find a problem, you can treat a problem, but if it was never gonna be a problem anyway, cause a problem in that patient's life, you know, cause uh, symptoms, cause disability, cause death, anything like that, then you wasted a whole bunch of time and resources and anxiety and worry doing this for something that wasn't really a problem. Um, and so these online services that patients sometimes go through, they do just tons of inappropriate, not really indicated testing. So at least you know, for people in, in the US, we tend to guide them towards this organization called the US Preventative Services Task Force, the USPSTF. And they have uh, basically lists of demographic specific screening tests that they recommend. And those would be perfectly generalizable to population here, even though I'm sure clinicians here might fall under European uh, guidelines for what they should do. Mm -hmm. But it tells you age, sex, certain risk factors. Hey, what should you do for this patient from a screening standpoint? What don't we have evidence for? And what causes harm? What shouldn't we do? Right? So this is where we get into complicated things like, should we be screening for prostate cancer? Should we be screening sure. for you know, pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, things like that? And each one of these is an individual, separate, very complicated discussion. 
So you know, in general, we don't tend to recommend that people pursue lots of testing, particularly if they're doing fine. If they have a certain sign or symptom that's potentially concerning, then they should get it evaluated so that it can get properly evaluated. Because maybe you want to get some tests for a symptom that you have, and maybe you order a few tests, but you miss a whole bunch of important things that might reveal what is actually going on. Right. So getting it evaluated by somebody who actually knows what they're doing and knows how to interpret the tests is important. So when I order a test, anytime I order a test, um, I basically already have in mind what, how am I going to interpret this based on how, what result I get. The, the clinical context. This is how I kind of teach the residents and students that I work with. This is how I was taught. Basically, if you order a test, you should already have a plan in mind regardless of what happens. You should never be surprised by a test result. In other words, if you get it back and it's low or if it's high, you should know what you're going to do in either scenario. It's a really bad look when you order a test not knowing what you're going to do with it. Right. And the patients do this all the time. They just get a bunch of tests, see what comes back. You're like, oh, shit, that's abnormal. Let me go find somebody who can help me deal with this because I don't know what this means. Bad look. It's a family show. Yeah. Come on, man. I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's like a, sh <laughs> it's like a shotgun approach to medicine, right? Yeah. yeah, it's like the person who orders all these different blood tests for, you know, an abnormality. They, they should have, like, thought about what mm -hmm. they're going to do first. All right, so here's the secondary question. What is, what is your least favorite mail order test that you're aware of right now? It's a good one. <laughs> Try to say dolphin. <laughs> I'd say probably the the reverse T three. Oh yeah yeah yeah. It's like a it's like a it's like a soup it's a it's a type of thyroid hormone testing that's done and um, yeah. It's meaningless. Yep. Usually not helpful. Yeah. Uh, but when it's abnormal, people freak out. Yeah. Yeah. Reverse T three. And then so the the other thing that so you think about the person who's likely to order their own test here, right? So they're, they're likely, and then they see this abnormal result, they're likely to circumvent their doctor, the, their actual physician's pathway to obtaining correct treatment for this. They might order thyroid hormone on their own from a black market supplier. <laughs> this is not an unusual situation. Or seek out a provider who's willing to prescribe this for them without necessarily going through the actual workup and evaluation that they otherwise need. They get inappropriately treated for a number of years. The symptoms don't actually go away. Yeah, it's a it's a bad bad news. My least favorite is the gut health one. That's not yeah. It, I well, have nothing to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. You have nothing to say about that. <laughs> yeah, right. It doesn't but, really. It's not really meaningful. It's not really meaningful because gut health. That's like like what, when people say gut health, that's like a red flag. Like if someone says gut health expert in their Instagram bio, right? <laughs> and then like after their actual name, it's not like PhD, MD, like all these other accol accolades, like they've actually been literally in the research field for years and years and years, then you know that they're full of crap. <laughs> Talking about crap. Yeah, it, it's just because the experts in the field, the actual experts in the field are like, we don't know. We're learning more and more yeah. and more, but the actual experts are just like... They're more uncertain than anybody uh, else. <laughs> but meanwhile, the, the girl that you know who dropped out of university and was selling you know, makeup for, for a year is now a gut health expert because she went to a weekend course. <laughs> Seems unlikely. Yeah. Seems unlikely. Yes, 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 right. Well, right, because there's, a, there's a one, that one weird trick to get your gut healthy, <laughs> right? You have to do that's like a lemonade and hot sauce you know, enema, and then you, <laughs> well, oh if, it's, if it's burning, it's working. That's, a, <laughs> that's what I learned in medical school. Okay. Do your weekly minimum activity recommendations change at all for people working physically demanding jobs, maybe construction or cleaning jobs? Do the activity guidelines all have to be met? Or if someone does a lot of resistance training, does that person maybe need a little less aerobic or anaerobic exercise? 
So uh, the, quest, the, the answer to the first part of this, so somebody's working a really physically active job, if they're meeting, if their met requirements um, are being met <laughs> during their physical, uh, during their job, meaning that they're at six mets or greater or, uh, for, or four to six mets would be moderate intensity exercise or greater than six mets would be high intensity exercise, then that's cutting into their, their total requirements they need to be met per week. Um, same thing with the lifting. No, they still, I would recommend that all lifters probably meet these physical activity guideline minimums. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, I said during the lecture that most people, when they're walking around, probably aren't meeting that moderate intensity sort of threshold. And I, I guess I should clarify, I mean that when people are walking around like in their homes, for instance, or like, you know, just, just literally sauntering around, not like I'm going for a walk. Most people going for a walk will tend to walk at a little bit faster pace, and, and again, we'll, we'll probably be okay, but most people just walking like, I'm walking to the car, or I'm walking to the kitchen to open the fridge to get the cake. Like, it's, prob <laughs> it's probably, not, probably not enough intensity. And then also, uh, right now, the current guidelines suggest that people should be doing this in f at least five minute bouts uh, at a time or more. So even if you were walking around the house for 30, 40 seconds, it's probably not gonna count for your total, your total activity count. So if you're working a, a, a heavy labor job, you're probably okay, probably, you know, if you work construction, um, if you work uh, uh, something like that. Although I will say this, you'll get used to it over time unless the demands for your, of your job change a lot. So I, like to, I call this mailman GPP, right? So that if you get a new job as a mailman and you're on foot and like day one, 25,000 steps, you're like, my legs are wrecked. Right, and so you know, squatting might be down for a week or two uh, until you get used to this. But after you've been the mailman for a while, that's no longer a stress on you. And so, do you need additional physical activity? Yeah, probably. I think there's some variability by occupation. I cited some of this data in the um, sarcopenia lecture I gave. It was, uh, I think, towards the end of the talk, where there's actually appears to be something of a, a paradox or some. Uh, it's tricky with occupational physical activity, whether it conf conf uh, confers the same amount of benefit as kind of recreational physical activity. And there's some thought that um, in some situations it, it might not. And some of the benefits that you might be getting from the physical activity might be getting mitigated by like, you know, negative stress as a result of the job or, or something like that. So I don't think we have a super, you know, perfect answer on that. Obviously, we're just trying to get people more active in general. And I, I agree. I think that people hear what we're talking about with the recommendations and they're like, in a generally active training population, and like 150, 300 minutes of like this moderate intensity activity. But again, moderate intensity, this prescription's for like the whole population and the lower limit of where moderate intensity is is actually pretty low for people who are generally active, right? So you might not consider, you know, going for a walk to actually be moderate intensity physical activity, uh, but it actually would count in that standpoint. Just FYI, that's like 22 minutes a day. So, you know, just one less Instagram check. All right, hey, are there any non-nocebo, is there any non-nocebo information around varicose veins and lifting slash squatting? I actually don't know. Uh, all the stuff that I've seen is, it's not really from medical sites. They're from like popular blogs, which just, they say varicose veins, and then if you squat, that'll make them worse. Uh, but the actual, like, I've, I've looked into this briefly. Where's she at? There she is, Le with Leah. So Leah and I started working together was it 2012? Uh, yeah, I think so. And you were like, hey, bro, varicose veins, what do? Yes, yes. 
I think that I didn't, that's not what your email said exactly, but that's that's I the summary. Yes, yes, yes. And so I kind of went down this rabbit hole just trying to see like what the literature actually shows on this in relation to exercise. And uh, yeah, there are some studies on machine-based training. There's a bunch of studies on like, aerobic training. It doesn't appear to make uh, them any worse, uh, but people tend to, uh, when, as much as they lose weight, they might actually improve slightly. So that being said, uh, I don't know that I would go, I'd be curious to know like why we're looking for information. You see what I'm saying? Like to, to actually like counter this. Yeah. Because, it, because most people who have varicose veins are probably open to exercising unless their doctor or somebody else has told them like you shouldn't do this for some reason. In which case, I don't know that a single study is going to convince them otherwise. Uh, yeah, my, my thought here is, as kind of we usually describe with this stuff, that you have to look at it with a risk-benefit kind of perspective, right? So I see no scenario where the risks of varicose veins worsening outweighs yeah, sure. the benefits of training, yeah. meaning that you should train, and if it makes the veins worse, okay, if that bothers you, you can see a vascular surgeon and get them treated, Yep. right? But the fact that your veins might be visible or might be worsening as a result of training, in my mind, is not a valid reason to not train, right? Yep. Because yeah. there are known harms to not training, right? Whereas varicose veins being present or worsening from, from exercise, while you could technically classify that as a harm of training, right? That itself is not an inherently harmful condition insofar as it'll limit your lifespan in the same way that not being active or not training will limit your lifespan. So you right. need to train, if it makes them worse, get them treated. Sure. That's really all I would say on that. Yeah, I just, I would, I'd be curious to know whether it actually does make them worse. Uh, well, just out of curiosity. Yeah, because I don't actually know. I don't, think, I don't <laughs> think so based on what I've seen and I'd also want to know like, wh what is the purpose, what is the target audience for the information? Mm -hmm. Because if the target audience is the physician, that might tailor how I respond to this different than a, a gen pop. Yep. Because Gen Pop, I'd just be like, look, risk-benefit thing, boom, you know, and tell your doctor the same. Yeah. But the doctor, we might have a more, uh, a different conversation mm -hmm. uh, about this. Okay. What was, ooh, this is good. What was your worst med student self-diagnosis? Do, do you already know your answer to this? Do you know yours? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so in the United States, uh, between your second and third year, we have our first a set of national boards called step one. It effectively determines your entire future. So basically, if you score really high on this exam, uh, all the potential residencies are open to you. If you score very middle of the road or poor on this exam, many different residency or training opportunities will be closed to you. So if you're like, I wanna go to Harvard for residency, or I wanna go to UCLA for residency, you need to score high on this test so they'll look at your application. In any event, I was studying for this test like seven or eight hours a day, okay? And I started getting these massive headaches. And one of the testing tools, that, uh, study tools that we use is called QBank. And like one of the questions, I swear to you, I remember this, I'll probably get in trouble for this now because it'll be like, you're repeating one of the questions. <laughs> and it was like a you know, mid-20s individual who got new onset headaches who never had headaches before and they ended up having a meningioma, you know, brain cancer, right? Well, at least those are benign. Yeah, exactly, I know, I know. But so like I had never it's had a headaches. It's tumor though. Yeah, I've never had headaches in my entire life, right? 
and I started having headaches, and I was like, oh boy, oh man, it's a brain tumor, even if it's benign, this is gonna be serious. And I was dating uh, this woman who worked at a, a optometrist's office, and she goes, when's the last time that you checked your, got your eyes checked? And I was like, never, I have great vision. <laughs> Not on my worst day do I need glasses. Uh, so in any event, I went and got my eyes checked. Uh, it was her suggestion, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I needed glasses. I got glasses, and my headaches went away. Uh, <laughs> Pretty smart guy for a second year medical student. So that was yeah. the worst one. I thought I had brain cancer. Um, yeah. I guess I also thought the depression thing, which really turned out to be sleep apnea. I think anytime I've tried to diagnose myself, I've you've just been, been wrong. Been. <laughs> yeah, so, so maybe that says something about my diagnostic acumen. Yeah. yeah. Mine wouldn't, mine that I would pick would not be from medical school, but from residency when there was a patient who had shown up with some very concerning neurological symptoms that ended up resulting in them undergoing a lumbar puncture and they were evaluating this patient for a certain type of what's called a prion disease. Prion disease like uh, mad cow disease, you guys may have heard of that, Creutzfeldt Jakob disease. And this is a situation where that, that, those sorts of conditions are lethal so that and there's only a, there's a specific test that you would order for this condition. And so if you order the specific test for this condition in a hospital, everyone's like, what are you doing ordering that test? <laughs> yeah. Do we have a mad cow patient in here or the similar types of conditions, the, the old protein 1433? Did you order your um, the test for yourself? Uh, no, it was, well, it was one of my co-interns oh. who ordered it on the patient, but I had interacted with this patient. Yeah. And so during that period of time, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. But did I'm you order the test this- on yourself? No I, no, I didn't order it on myself. You have oh. to get it on CSF. Oh, okay. yeah. So you have to do a lumbar puncture to check it. But when you, end, when you get exposed to one of those patients, then that would be concerning for potential transmission. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I was going to die for, for a period of time until they did not, in fact, have that condition. And everybody lived happily ever after. But <laughs> prion diseases are very scary. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're still here. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay. Uh, if an anabolic... Uh, Oh, anabolic resistant or training resistant individual needs more stress to achieve an adaptation. Does an anabolic or training sensitive person benefit from more stress? And how does this difference manifest in programming? This is a great question. So basically, if somebody's very training sensitive, anabolic, anabolically sensitive at the time, you probably wouldn't add training stress to them until they require it. So this is very similar to the emerging strategies kind of paradigm, also uh, kind of how our beginner template is programmed. Effectively, as long as somebody is making uh, demonstrable improvements, then you would keep the programming the same, the intervention the same, until that stops. In which case, uh, you would try to figure out, okay, do I need to change the dose of the stress or the formulation? Right, which, which is the wrong thing? In, in most cases, it's volume, but not all cases. It just depends how well somebody re- responded overall. So here's how I would shake that out. So let's say that beginner program that I, I, I wrote up on the board, let's say somebody was able to run that for nine weeks while making consecutive like progress, 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 and then week 10, they fell off a cliff. Not like literally like fell off a cliff, but like their training went off the cliff. So I would, I, would, I guess, interpret that as they were able to respond to the given level of training rather robustly for a good period of time. So it's probably not the formulation that was the problem, just the dose became inappropriate for what they needed to drive the adaptation. So in that case, I'd be more likely just to increase the training volume rather than change a whole bunch of other variables. 
On the other hand, if I had somebody who ran that program for four weeks, and lit like literally I added a little bit of volume, they got a little better, added a little bit of volume, they got a little better, added a little bit of volume, they got a little better, and then no improvement further was seen, like week four, they just stalled, they'd be like, wow, I really, this pro I got this program wrong. The formulation's probably wrong, not necessarily the dose. Does that make sense? So if somebody could like carry this on longer, I would, I'd be more apt to just increase the dose rather than change the other variables. But uh, as, somebody, as long as somebody is responding to their training program, uh, I don't see a need to actually change it uh, uh, prophylactically in a way, like before they stall. I just kind of like, like run it until it stops working and then change the appropriate variables. That would be the idea. Yeah. Nothing? Not really. I mean, I think that if, you know, the, yeah, other, you the, other, the other piece of this I wrote about for a research review recently, there was some data recently where it was a study by, I think his name is Barbalho or something, somebody from Brazil. Ah, uh, yes. And they basically stratified groups to different levels of weekly training volume. And they showed that the increases in training volume in this particular uh, study, they didn't actually get better results with the higher training volumes. The caveat to the study was that all the training volume was done on one day. So it was like 5, 10, 15, or 20 sets in one session that they were being exposed to. And that suggests, the way we interpreted it was that that suggested a limit to the, uh, an upper limit to how much useful training volume, how many sets you can do in one session, right? So if you start to exceed a certain number, like eventually the sets start, stop doing more for you. And it's probably best to distribute them more throughout the week, mm -hmm. right? Meaning, for example, you could do, you know, uh, uh, your 20 sets, if you're gonna, if you need 20 sets, which is uncommon to need that many, but po possible to distribute it across the week instead of all slamming in one session. And you so imagine doing 20 sets. A very training sensitive individual may maximize their anabolic response with a relatively low number of sets, right? Meaning, if you add more in a particular session, they may not get more results at that time until they get more trained. And remember, we talk about the more trained you get, the more anabolically resistant you get. Effectively, like we we're talking about us, we have to train a ton to make a rare PR once or twice a year, or once even less commonly than that, depending on the lift, Makes right? Because we're sad. very resistant to training at this point. Meaning that, yeah, sometimes we do need to do a whole bunch of sets in one session, more than we may have benefited from in the past, right? So this is a dynamic thing that changes over time. Yep. Cool. Are you do this Hashimoto thing? Yeah, we just have a couple more questions. All we're right. Almost there. Do you have any Hashimoto's training considerations for load intensity and exercise management? Do you want to define Hashimoto's? Hashimoto's refers to an autoimmune condition that affects the thyroid gland, kind of ends up, causes some destruction of the thyroid gland, you get hypothyroidism as a result. And the reason yeah. I included this question is not specific to the thyroid gland, but to make a more general point, because we get these sorts of questions about medical conditions all the time. So this, the, in this question, do you have any training considerations for load intensity and exercise management for Hashimoto's? You could make that Hashimoto's a blank and insert any medical, almost any medical condition sure. in there, heart failure, diabetes, liver disease, kidney disease, COPD, yes. stroke, any of this kind of stuff, right? And the point being that there are very few conditions, there are still some, but very few conditions that we would anticipate very specific or special needs for. We don't really view many uh, uh, groups to be special populations. People have talked about women are a special population, old people are a special population. We don't really necessarily view anybody as much of a special population when it comes to training. Like Jordan has talked about a bunch this weekend with programming, you train them, see how they do, adjust based on their response. You don't say, oh, you're in this demographic, I'm going to do something special for you, right? We don't necessarily view that as being a thing, unless 
their being in a certain demographic makes them unable to do certain things, right? So if I had a patient who had severe cerebral palsy, right? Yeah, I'm gonna program differently for them because they're gonna be physically unable to do certain things, right? That's a different situation, right? But just because you have Hashimoto's, yeah, I wouldn't make you go lighter or heavier. I wouldn't choose a squat or a deadlift or, or certain variations thereof. I wouldn't choose a specific exercise just because you have that. I would program you assuming that you're gonna be fine, particularly when it's treated, right? Yeah. Especially when it's treated, because you're effectively normal when it's treated and you're on thyroid hormone replacement uh, therapy. And uh, if you respond great, that's great. And if you don't res respond as well, I'll adjust the programming prescription, but I'm not going to blame your poor response on your Hashimoto's. That's tempting to do. Oh, I didn't, I didn't get the results I wanted because of my Hashimoto's. Well, all your labs suggest that you're fine. So maybe there's, some, there's a lot of variables that go into training response. We talked about that this whole weekend. Biological variables, psychological, social variables that go into training response. So maybe I need to change the formulation or the dose of your programming, but I don't want to blame it on your thyroid, yep. right? So um, for the overwhelming majority of medical conditions, uh, you're not special, is it fair to say that? <laughs> well, yeah. You're In terms of programming. Sure, yes. Right? You train you and you, we adjust based on how you respond. Yep. Yeah. The, way, the thing I think is important to point out here is that even if you are very healthy from a medical standpoint, it is likely that your performance and motivation to train and execution of the lifts and everything else is going to vary day to day on some level, right? It's like a sinusoidal wave, right? Some days are better than others, right? Real strong, not so strong, real strong, not so strong. And we know that it's important for that group of population to have an auto-regulated sort of training approach, meaning that you have the ability to select a weight that's appropriate for that day's level of performance. It effectively gives you the right amount of stress for that given day. Now, if you have somebody who's got a medical condition where you expect even wider fluctuations, right? Perhaps they have an autoimmune disease, perhaps they have a neurological disorder, perhaps they're they have- They're on chemo or something yeah, like that. Some yeah, some medical management that ultimately like puts them you know, really, really low sometimes, and then the other times they creep up back to normal, a little bit above, they need that auto-regulation even more. And it's not that we're trying to complicate the training, but rather we're just trying to give these people options that make their training time uh, worthwhile. Not just options, but tools and skills sure. to be able to adapt and self-manage yep. right, to their condition. So you've noticed I've said this phrase multiple times, starting with Saturday morning with our definition of health, the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of physical, social, and emotional challenges. So when you have a bad day, that's a challenge. If you can effectively adapt and self-manage by adjusting your loads and getting the work done, that represents a robust, resilient, healthy individual. Right? If, on the other hand, your training prescription is so rigid and your mindset towards training is so rigid that you have a challenging day and you say, I'm just going to quit and go home right? because I can't do what the paper tells me to do because you don't give yourself room for flexibility in your training, yeah, that's not what we're aiming for here. Right. If carrying too much body fat is detrimental to your health because of the heart having to work more to supply bigger mass, uh, that's not the case. But we'll go on. Is it not the same concern in having increased lean muscle mass and the heart having to work more to supply that increased mass? Question mark? Yeah, I included it because it's, we I get, had to go this up? is a common misconception about how this stuff works. So should I we should do my it. impersonation no. again? Nope, nope, you shouldn't. <laughs> Working on a little novel? Yeah, all right. <laughs> a little Would you like to address the question? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you know I like that one. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right. Uh, so, the reason why excess body fat 
is a problem is not really due to like this pump demand, you know, like limitation, meaning that your heart can't pump enough blood to the adipose tissue to support like its existence. Yeah. It's, rather, the adipose tissue is biologically active. It's producing a bunch of hormones, adipokines uh, specifically, that are doing a whole bunch of crap in the body, a whole bunch of nefarious stuff. So increasing. LDL production, right? Increasing inflammation, uh, otherwise uh, wreaking havoc, in increasing insulin resistance, etc. Okay, so the, that's the problem with carrying too much body fat. And you can go down the list and just say, oh, body fat does this, and associated with this, associated yeah. with this. Uh, so it's not due to like this blood supply like like uh, uh, constraint. So reducing body fat uh, tends to help by reducing the amount of adipokines that are being dumped in the circulation. Uh, with respect to lean body mass, there uh, we don't have that problem because again, it's not a pump problem. And in fact, you get the, capillarization, you get lots more blood vessels to supply yes. all that muscle mass. Yeah, before yeah. the muscle even exists, like yeah. myotubes won't even form unless you got a bunch of blood sitting mm -hmm. there. Um, yeah, and it also won't form unless you're really well hydrated. Hi uh, being hydrated is an anabolic stimulus in and of itself. In any event, um, the uh, having more muscle mass is also actually interesting. We just talked about adipokines. Well, myokines are the hormones secreted by muscles, and they do a bunch of cool stuff like reduce inflammation, uh, reduce inflammation, uh, improve healing responses, right? Like improve remodeling response of different tissues. Uh, they're great. Yeah. So you well, want and they're and they're, and they're secreted. They're, these are hormones secreted by the muscles in response to muscular contraction. So it's not just having the muscle, but actually using it that ends up secreting these hormonally active substances yep. that cause a whole bunch of beneficial effects throughout the body. Same thing as exerkines, so like... Uh, Lots uh, of different hormones. Yeah. Yeah. Hormones. I, I, th I think that I wanted to clarify, because it's a common misconception that like, oh, you have a lot of mass, you're big, your heart has to work really hard, and that's why you know people end up with heart failure or something like that, and it's, just, it's definitely not, not that simple. Well, it's just like we're a car. Right? Yeah, the engine's yeah. got to work too hard because yeah. the car is too big. Right. So well, if it's too big, <laughs> from having too big of an engine, you know? Yeah, so they heard me rant about the, the machine analogy earlier today. Well, um, but we see, you know, heart failure, actually, I see it every day, really commonly among patients with obesity, um, where your heart is unable to effectively pump to supply blood and oxygen to your body. And it's not due to, you know, having this mass that it has to supply. Uh, it's due to kind of these sort of inflammatory, hormonal, com really complicated effects of obesity. We're just going, we're going yeah, right. here. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, do you think that strength is simply a proxy for lean body mass in its relationship with all-cause mortality, or is there more nuance? Do you want to explain this question, maybe for people who might not be sure what it's asking? Sure, yeah. So we know that there is a relationship, uh, an association between strength and reduction in all-cause mortality, meaning that the strongest individuals tend to ha have reduced risk of early death uh, compared to people who are weaker. And usually this is assessed via hand grip dynamometer or isokinetic knee extension. Knee extension. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there, we have a similar relationship between people who are carrying more lean body mass and more jacked uh, than those who are carrying less lean body mass. Uh, as far as do I think that strength is simply a proxy, like simply uh, a sort of that lean body mass is what's mediating, is what's causing the decrease in mortality, and strength yeah. is just due to that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, an interesting sort yeah. of argument because if I had to predict which person is going to produ uh, perform best on a strength test, and they were both untrained and had never seen the test before, I'm going to pick the person who's more jacked, carrying more lean body mass. Uh, that being said, I don't necessarily think that 
it's a one-to-one -one relationship there either. I think there's something to do with use. Actually being strong? Well, basically that you've used the muscle mass. Yeah. Similar to like, because what do I know about myokines and exokines, et cetera, I think there's some unique benefits there that yeah. even if you had all this muscle mass, like you were just blessed, hashtag bless up, like <laughs> that you need to use that muscle mass in order to get uh, some of those health benefits. Um, so I don't think that it's simply a proxy. There's probably a overlap, a, a overlap for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I found this question actually to be really interesting. Uh, I don't actually know, and I know that's less than satisfying to, to uh, answer a question yeah, presented prefer, here. People prefer concrete they answers. They really want concrete answers. Yeah. yeah. I think there's, a, there's likely to be a substantial overlap, right? The question is asking whether it's a complete overlap, meaning whether is all the mortality reduction just due to being jacked? And when we measure strength, it's just because they're jacked. Um, maybe, but I like to think that there's something unique to being strong that gives you some additional benefit compared to just being jacked. Uh, but I don't have evidence to really su to, to support that. So yeah. I don't know. Interesting thought, though. Yeah. Interesting topic. Yes. We'll look into it. Does adherence to nutritional advice get worse by having used several diets without results? Uh, yes. In fact, people who are deemed unsuccessful dieters tend to have a lower uh, chance of success after every diet that they fail. Um, although, that being said, the initial cutoff is something like five failed diets. Uh, in any event, that's another, that's for another question. What can we do to battle the problem of learned helplessness? Uh, so, I, okay, can I go? All right. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Just freely let him talk. He likes to talk more than I do. Thanks, Dan. Uh, I don't necessarily know that it's a case of learned helplessness, meaning that I don't think that's what's necessarily holding these people back. I think that it's the standard way that we counsel folks on this that's really the problem, meaning that we're all, we're trying to do this, uh, have this sort of relationship where like we're the educator and the other person is a student and we just give them the information and then they have to take it and implement it rather than involve them being an, their own sort of manager of their healthcare. So for instance, asking the person, what kind of diet would you be willing to do? Or what sort of steps would you be willing to take? Or even getting them again, motivated to make these changes, right? So basically, if you tell somebody, hey, you're obese, okay, look, you got the measurements right here, hey, that's probably hurting your health, and here's what you should do, and then you give them a plan, and then they don't stick to that plan, did they really fail that diet? It they had no chance of success because they weren't involved, they weren't uh, engaged. They had no buy-in to the process. <laughs> Correct, yeah, yeah. So, so I think really the problem here with adherence overall has to do with the way that we're engaging folks in behavioral change overall. So what I would like to do again is establish the relationship, right? Focus on the problem, which you may have to handle other concerns by the patient or the client to begin with, because they might be more concerned about something else besides changing their diet in the first place. And then you might have to redirect there after addressing their concern. Because if you just focus on the diet and don't address their concern, they're gonna be like, this person's a quack, I came here for this other problem, why didn't they talk about that at all? So after you focus, then uh, you can start to evoke from them all these uh, different um, sort of strategies and motivations and, and uh, get their buy-in to making a change. And then finally, after you've done all of that, can you start the planning process? What do you want to do? What are you willing to do? What have you tried before? What have you been your obstacles? How can I help you? How can you help yourself? All these sorts of things. But most people skip steps one, two, and three and just jump to four. Be like, see, I see your BMI, I see your waist circumference. Feigenbaum said that those people who benefit from weight loss, you need weight loss. Here's how to do it. So just lose weight. Just lose weight. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, I don't know if it's a learned helplessness as much as it is a failure of, of, us. of us as humans. Because we've all done this, right? We feel like anytime you see two people talking, like one person is giving the other person advice. 
right? It's like, and, and, and so what you want to do is you want to be helpful, right? And so we want to give people advice, uh, give them stuff that we've, we've learned, but what you really need to do in cases of behavioral change is sort of get the person to verbalize it, to be motivated on their own accord yeah. to, to make the change. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, to the extent that the individual does have some degree of learned helplessness, then that really just reflects low self-efficacy. Self yep. And we want to try to give people higher self-efficacy, which has been probably the predominant theme of this entire weekend, right? Which, and, and you have to start somewhere. So you're not necessarily, they not, might not be ready to take complete, total and complete charge of their, their whole health. But think about how we talked about goal setting in the context of training and the idea of process goals, for example. So maybe they set a process goal regarding their health or their nutrition or their exercise habits or something like that, and you get them a win from that, right? They're able to successfully complete one process goal. Well, suddenly they feel like, hey, there's actually something that I was able to successfully do here. I do have some level of control. I can actually accomplish something. That's the first step to building that self-efficacy. Then you get another process goal, and you, you, you try to build upon that. So that's what we do in the health world. That's what we do in our rehab clients. Um, that's what we do in training for, for, for healthy people, getting somebody a win, getting some momentum going, giving them the, t the tools, the skills, the knowledge to be able to adapt and self-manage as much as they can in these situations. Um, and, and a really good resource, I think, with uh, detailed information that we should all have a greater appreciation for, go to our friend, uh, uh, our friend Alan Flanagan. Oh, yeah. He has excellent information in the world of nutrition. And uh, him and his buddy, who is a surgeon in the UK, um, they actually have their own podcast, and they talk a lot about um, how to actually implement these nutritional in, uh, uh, recommendations with people. In particular, they are able to effectively address a lot of the socioeconomic barriers that we oftentimes don't recognize when we're making these recommendations, right? So we're here, we're all privileged and able to, you know, do this kind of recreational activity and train at gyms that we have to pay for and all kinds of other stuff, but the general population out there is not in the same boat and telling them just lose weight when they have even fewer resources, right? It's hard enough for people in this room. You tell people who have no resources or social capital or, or, or knowledge or expertise or education or any of that kind of stuff. You're getting very political. I am getting political. Um, they're, they're set up for failure from the start and we're not able to support them effectively. So that's why asking those questions at the beginning and getting to know the person and their life and their, 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 uh, their uh, social and economic context and things like that is really important so that you can know, hey, is it even reasonable for me to be asking them to do this thing? Sure. Instead, I should be asking them, hey, what are you able to do yep. in your situation? Yep. Rather than saying, hey, why don't you go raw vegan paleo, right? When you're making what, like, you know, $40 a week or something like that. That's ain't gonna happen, right? Yeah, was it pagan? Paleo vegan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I just would like to say also that like with this sort of um, technique when you're asking people all these questions and trying to get them, you're trying to evoke again their own sort of motivations and ideas for self for self-efficacy and changing and, and stuff like that. It's not just being nice to somebody. That's not what this is. This is a like planned mental strategy you're trying to deploy. Playing mind games. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I think that practicing that can help us all like achieve achieve a bunch of good stuff. So mm -hmm. okay. Last question. If the goal is solely hypertrophy, general jacketude, what would you op uh, would you still optimally program the squat, bench, deadlift, and press? Uh, would I? Question mark. I, I probably wouldn't. 
mainly because I don't think that you can do enough volume on any of those movements without uh, an undue amount of fatigue compared to the muscle stimulation you get. So effectively, the stress to adaptation ratio is it's out of proportion compared to doing something like a hammer strength uh, bench or dumbbell bench or something like that that's a little bit less fatiguing, still gets the same motor unit recruitment, still works the same range of motion, but is overall less fatiguing. And that's particularly for me, given that I have a lot of history on the squat bench, deadlift, and press. So for instance, if Austin was like, if he was programming for me and he's like, Jordan's get jacked plan. And he was like, deadlift, set of 10 at RP8. Yeah, well, well that's gonna be like, I've done 10s before. It's gonna so be like, like 240 kilos. Yeah, I'm like, 240 <laughs> is the number. But how much fatigue does that generate compared to how much you know general hypertrophy of the back and, and legs compared to doing a bunch of rows and some other you know stuff that's a little less taxing? And this especially gets more important as, you're, uh, as you get more and more advanced when you need more and more volume, right? So it's like, oh yeah, just add more sets on the deadlift. It's like, uh, no thanks. <laughs> and this comes from a guy who's done nine sets of five before on all my comp lifts for like multiple weeks in a row. Like I've done this high volume thing, but trying to do 12 sets, yeah. you know, it's just not going to happen. I'd rather do more rows. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's my thing. And I think that's in keeping with like Isratel's thinking on this too. Uh, but I, I, the last thing I'll say about this is it depends on context, right? So if you're just starting out, like just starting out, I think from a training economy standpoint, you can get a pretty big bang for your buck by doing these movements because they do work a lot of muscle mass over a, a big range of motion. You get a lot of motor unit recruitment as long as you load them heavy enough. But uh, the more and more advanced you become, the less and less uh, I think it matters yeah. that you're doing the big four. It's dead? Yeah, Good, right. I have nothing to add. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, so that you have nothing to add? No. All right, cool. Well, thank you guys so much for coming to the Barbell Medicine Seminar in Berlin. Really appreciate you guys coming. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys later. Yeah.